The uh, children are dismissed for children's church, so if you're a part of that demographic, up through uh, grade four, you are dismissed. Uh, the rest of us turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 13. I'll be reading verses 17 through 35 today. I appreciate Ryan uh, spelling me for, um, I was in a general assembly last week. It's our annual gathering of PCA uh, pastors, teaching elders, ruling elders. Scott Rask was also there. And I'm here to report that it was, it was a good assembly. I, I think that there were no hot button issues. Uh, we did vote on a lot of things. It was a bunch of lawyers talking to lawyers, talking to lawyers and working through Robert's rules. And it was riveting if you like that sort of thing. But it is necessary it is necessary that we do things in good order. It is necessary that, that we come together so that we are trying to keep our doctrine pure, so that we want to continue uh, to expand the gospel. Um, I'm, I'm, ex- I'm delighted to say that the, the PCA as a denomination is actually planting a church about one every two weeks now. We're getting back to numbers that we had prior to COVID. Uh, and so we're back uh, bringing up new church plants and new church planters. So that means that the P- we'll, we'll plant about 26 new churches this year. Uh, and praise God for that as we continue to raise up men uh, and families and core groups to, to, to be light in places where there is no church. Um, but we are in John chapter 13. John chapter 13 is the end of Jesus' ministry. We, we think of it as the beginning of the farewell discourse. It is the last week of Jesus. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about washing the disciples' feet. And I talked about what does it mean to love Jesus and model our lives after Jesus. And the love is always an action. Love is always demonstrating itself. And so the way that Jesus demonstrates the act of love to the disciples is by washing their feet. And he says, now, you're not just supposed to be washing feet, but you're meant to be serving, serving the body, serving other people, thinking more about other people than you do about yourself. And in the midst of that, we see this, this service idea that happens in John chapter 13, service, love being demonstrated out. And then we have this little interlude here from verses maybe 17 and 18 down through 30 that it talks about the betrayal of Judas. And then it transitions back to this idea of a new commandment in verse 34. So it's this new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in the midst of this sacrificial service and love, we see this this episode of betrayal. And then we see this idea of loving one another, this new commandment that, that is supposed to be this witness to the world where people are brought into a loving relationship with the Lord. And so as I look at this, I go, how does this work itself out? How, how do we see Judas right in the middle of this passage that's sandwiched between love demonstrated and, and love called to? And it's this idea of Judas Iscariot and the betrayal of Jesus. So that's what we're going to be working on today. Um, working on the idea of how does this actually um, call us to love and how do we love in the midst of this? So having said that, Um, Let me read for you John 13, beginning in verse 17 through verse 35. If you know these things, and again, these things, he's talking about washing feet, sacrificial love and service. Blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know of whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. 
And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. All right. So we know that John is writing his um, gospel for this reason. John chapter 20 verse 30 and 31. I haven't said it in a few weeks, so just to remind you. you know, it's helpful for us to know exactly what John is saying. In John chapter 20, he says, I'm writing all of these things for this reason, for this explicit purpose. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, meaning everything written in the gospel of John, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So everything he's writing, he's writing so that we might believe more deeply, so that our belief might be encouraged, bolstered, bolstered, expanded, so that in believing we may have life in his name. Now in the midst of this, here's what I see. In verse 18, he's talking about the betrayal, and he says, I know whom I have chosen, uh, in verse 18, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, That is a reference to Psalm 41, verse 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over there if you want to. There's a couple places in Psalms I want to show you. Um, you Psalm 42, where it says, uh, I'm sorry, I'm I'm getting a little discombobulated here for a second. But it's talking about that Psalm, and it's it's saying, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now he says that, because he wants scripture to be fulfilled. He actually says this, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, that particular psalm, what we find is that uh, David, it's a psalm of David, and in the midst of that psalm of David, David is writing, most likely people are saying it's when um, that Absalom is now taking over the kingdom. So his son Absalom has now uh, pro- pronounced himself king, and David uh, is now being um, hustled out of Jerusalem because Absalom is declaring himself king. The people are behind him, and what we find is that everyone is turning against David, and in particular, there is a man 
named Ahithophel. And Ahithophel is one of the counselors of David. And what David is writing in the midst of that psalm is he's saying this. He's saying that this person, his heel has been lifted against me. One who ate at my table, one who has been with me, who has given me good counsel. He's very wise. It seems as if he is blessed by the Lord. And Ahithophel actually was, uh, many people would say, many commentators would say that David is regarding Ahithophel's counsel and one who would lift his heel against him. Now, let me just uh, say this. You know, and, and while Absalom, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, while Absalom was offering his, the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor. From his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So Ahithophel continued to counsel David. Meanwhile, he had a knife in his back to stab David in the back. We see this. Now, in the midst of this, David, um, when, he, when he found out that Ahithophel was with him, um, he heard this in, in 2 Samuel 15. He says this, um, but David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now, God does that because Ahithophel actually gives good counsel to Absalom. Absalom says after he's taken the city of Jerusalem, his father is now fleeing into the, into the wilderness. He says, How, what, what should I do now, Ahithophel? You're a wise counselor. What should I do? And he says this. Ahithophel says, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight, and I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Ab- Absalom called, um, said, call Hushai the archite also and let us hear what he has to say. And Hushai said, don't do that. This time the counsel of Ahithophel has not, is not, that is, has been given is not good. You know that your father and his men are mighty men and they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with his people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself and over the pits and some other places. And he says, rather than that, and, and let me summarize. He says, let's gather all the army of Israel and Judah. Let's gather them. Let's take our time. Let's gather all of them up and let's gather them together. And then we will fight against David and his men and we will win and we will conquer him. And so he said, rather than following the counsel of Ahithophel, I will follow the counsel of Hushai, the archite, who was actually David's um, servant. Now, in the midst of this, and here's why I want to bring this up, because Judas is like Ahithophel in this way. Because in 2 Samuel 17, verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, went off home to his own city, he set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Sounds very similar and very familiar to what Judas did after he betrayed Jesus, where he took the 30 pieces of silver that he took for Jesus and he cast them into the temple. And then he went and he hanged himself. Now, the reason I bring that up 
is that all of this is written in this way, uh, alluding back to, to the Psalms, alluding back to this for this reason. He goes, I'm telling you this now, in verse 19 of John chapter 13, I'm telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Meaning that the prophecy that was written and was given by Jesus was so that the disciples would not be discouraged. Because think of this, they've been following Jesus for three years. They thought he was the Messiah. He was gonna be exalted. And in the midst of his kingdom that was going to come and he was gonna rule, they were gonna be next to him. And all of a sudden, you mean Jesus has now been outwitted by Judas Iscariot? It seems as if everything is falling apart. And Jesus is saying, and John is writing in John 13, saying that Jesus has said these things. He says, but that the scripture will be fulfilled. Why was it written? So that the credibility and the truthfulness or the veracity of what was about to happen would be known to the disciples. That they would look back and say, yes, this is true. As a matter of fact, when we look at the prophecies of Isaiah 7 or Isaiah 9, um, and we see these prophecies in Isaiah, they bolster our faith because Jesus fulfills them. And the reason that we can take comfort in the promises that are given about a new heaven and a new earth and that we will be with him forever and that he will never leave us nor forsake us is because Jesus on a perpetual basis always fulfills prophecy and keeps his promises. When we think about scripture, when we think about coming to the word of God, think about this. Why do we, let me me quote James Boyce, why do we cherish the scriptures? Why do we memorize them? It is because these words have come to us from God and therefore also bearing his nature are eternal and so will not pass away. Everything else, everything else that we know will pass away, sometimes well within our lifetimes. The ideas and viewpoints that your children are being taught today in grade school will be changed before they reach high school. What they are taught in high school will be altered by college. College, um, you know, college outlooks will change by the time the young man or woman enters his or her profession. Even then, professors change so quickly that unless the person reads to keep up, he or she will soon be behind in the field that they are an expert in. Nothing we learn is permanent. Nothing we see Nothing we see is eternal except the scriptures. They are permanent. They are absolutely trustworthy. That is why we memorize them and teach them to our children. That is why when Jesus is saying that this prophecy will be fulfilled, I'm saying it before it happens, it's so that the disciples will not lose heart, but rather they will trust all the more in Jesus that he will do what he said he will do and has done. You see, everything else is changing, but God does not change. His word does not change. I mean, that's what we're looking for, right? Stability, something that will be the anchor for our soul, something that we can build upon a firm foundation. Boyce goes on to say, he says, if you're a parent, have you ever thought that there's nothing you can leave your children that will not pass away in time except the truths found in this book? Some parents think that they have served their children well if they have left them some money. 
but money can disappear overnight. Sometimes the children even reject it. Other parents think that their legacy to their children will be a fine education or perhaps their values that they instill. But here's the deal. Only the word of God remains valuable without change. Do not be foolish enough to neglect this book when you are trying to give your children the best. I mean, and that's what we want, right? Like we want to give our children the very best. You should anyway, right? If you're a good father or a good mother. You want to give them the best. So what is the best? The best is Jesus. The best is growing them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. The best is giving them the word of God, instilling it in their hearts, showing and demonstrating what it is to to be a forgiving, loving parent? What does it mean that you are the chief repenter in your homes? You know, some people might think like the best thing I can give my kids is a million bucks when I, when I pass on. But again, it'll just flitter away. I've often seen this, that you know, wealthy people will, will give a lot of wealth to their children and it will ruin them. <laughs> and yet children here today who are listening, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You can still, you still, you still give me something, though, right? It's okay, it's okay. You know, like leave me the house or something. You know, I mean, but but I'm here to tell you that the best thing that your parents can give you is Jesus. It will last, and He will never let you down. Now, speaking of never letting down, think about this. Think about Judas for a second as we come to this. Judas was one of the twelve. Judas was the one who was in charge of the money bag. No other disciple knew or was even suspicious suspicious of Judas at this point. Judas had been there when Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus had been there when he fed 5,000. He was there when he fed 4,000, not too long after that. He was there when when the eyes of the blind were were opened. He was there when the the deaf could now hear, when the lame could now dance. Judas was there for all of that. Judas was there when he he took the Pharisees and, and took them to court and won. I mean, Judas was there for all of that. And yet Judas betrayed Jesus. As a matter of fact, when you look at John chapter 17, here's what we find. Um, Look at verse 22. After he says, one of you will betray me. By the way, that's why we only have 11 elders, not 12. I'm just kidding. You know, I think we'll probably have more, but you know, I'm always like, "Uh, I don't know if I want 12 elders, you know, one of those guys, you never know. Um, But I'm just kidding. Uh, One of the disciples whom Jesus loved and that's John. That's who we think of as John. Now, we might look at that and go, well, that's really prideful of, of John, right? I don't think we think of that as a prideful way. I think more of that in this way is that John is saying, I can't believe that Jesus loved me. <laughs> I can't believe that I was worthy, counted worthy of being a child of God and that I'm one who, who is loved by God. So rather than thinking of it as a prideful statement, think of it as a humble statement and a statement of reorientation of identity. Because John is saying, I don't want you to know me as by my name. I want you to know me by the most significant thing in my life, that I am loved by Jesus. Now, Jesus, and again, in the ancient world, they're probably reclining. They're leaning, on, they're leaning with their head towards the food. They're leaning, uh, laying down. Their, their left arm is down, and so they're eating with their right arm, okay? 
John is here, so essentially what happens is in a, in a round table, you know, a round table like that, you know, John is gonna be right here, and so his head is gonna be very close to Jesus' chest. And so he actually asks him this question. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple leaning against Jesus, and that's why he was leaning, you know, it was like, yeah, he leans back to ask him a question because they're talking, and so he's not facing him, so he leans back to ask Jesus this question. He says, Lord, who is it? And think about this. Judas is on the left-hand side of Jesus because he's able to dip a piece of morsel, uh, a bread, uh, dipping bread into, um, he, he dips a piece of, of, of bread, and then when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, which means that Judas most likely was on his left side. So he takes the bread, he dips it in, and he hands it to Judas. Now Judas, the left side, the left place was the place of most honor among all the disciples. And so for whatever reason, you know, and again, it's the, the providence of God, the plan of God, that Judas would actually be at a place of honor next to Jesus. So Jesus not only, or Judas, excuse me, Judas had not only had his feet washed by the king of kings and lord of lords, he was at a place of honor among the other 12 and actually had bread dipped in and then handed to him, which means that you are my friend. That is a a, a show of hospitality in the ancient world. And it meant you are my intimate friend. But he uses it in this way. So think about this. Judas betrays Jesus. He betrays him. So he says that after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Again, the disciples are still at a loss at this point. They don't understand what's going on. They thought, well, maybe he's going to go get supplies for the feast. Maybe he's going to go give money to the poor. He's got the money bag. Jesus sent him on errands. But, but certainly Judas is still a part of us. And then he goes into the night. Now, going into the night, um, many commentators would say that that's a play on darkness and light, that essentially Judas is leaving the light of Christ, who says, I am the light of the world, and he's now off into the darkness to do what people in the darkness do. And it's betrayal. Let me ask you this question. Let me get, try to get as personal as I can here. What do you do when someone has betrayed you? Your betrayal in a personal relationship refers to the violation of your trust by someone close to you. The betrayal could be your partner's infidelity, or it could be your best friend's dropping you for a new friend. You might also feel betrayed if your significant other didn't defend you in an argument with others. There's there's, there's big betrayals, there's small betrayals, all of those types of things. But what do you do when, when you're betrayed by someone? Oftentimes, when the betrayal is, is deep, um, I see this. Um, in a couple different ways. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Um, when, when a spouse commits adultery on another spouse and it becomes a surprise, that spouse is deeply wounded by this betrayal of this one who is close to them. Um, another type of betrayal that we see oftentimes is when um, parents may abuse, you know, whether it's physically 
um, unfortunately, sometimes even sexually, uh, abuse children. That's a betrayal. And people hold that betrayal in. I've also seen it in the midst of the church, where in the midst of the body of Christ, someone that you were close to, someone that maybe you were you were revered, uh, that you revered, or maybe somebody who revered you, there was betrayal that occurred. A violation of trust occurred. So what do you do? I mean, if, if, you, if you've been living in this world very long, you felt that. You felt some sort of betrayal in your life. Some friend has betrayed you. Maybe a parent has betrayed you. If you're a parent today, maybe a child has betrayed you. And in the midst of that betrayal, there's, there's, some, there's some implications that occur in the midst of who we are. Um, in the midst of living in, 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 in betrayal's aftermath, we have a difficult time trusting other people. It can feel impossible to trust anyone after your trust has been shattered by these experiences. Um, if your spouse has committed adultery or maybe there was some sexual uh, abuse that occurred, having a healthy sexual relationship with someone, your spouse. If you were abused, um, sex has become maimed and twisted by the darkness rather than being this joyful thing that's meant to happen in the midst of the covenant relationship. You could also be filled with bitterness and how, how do you avoid being filled with bitterness when terrible evils have occurred? How do you learn to forgive such a great wrong? I mean, I'm just talking about ways that, that betrayal and when trust is broken in the midst of different situations. But how about this one? Um, and and I, don't, I don't think lightly. If, if you were abused as a child, physically abused by your parents, then disciplining your own children will become difficult. How do you learn to discipline your children in love when you were attacked by your own parents? How do you do that? Or how do you deal with any conflict or confrontation? How do you confront a problem with family, friends, or coworkers when anger and confrontation was brutally distorted in your life? You know, I see this on a regular basis as a pastor. I see people who have been abused. I see people who have been hurt deeply by the church. Um, and then oftentimes, um, um, you know, the, the deeper the wounds come from those who are closest to them. And oftentimes, um, in our own sinfulness and our own way of dealing with these things, betrayal, we deal with these things in a couple different ways, but two of which are um, really difficult. The two ways deal with their past. Either they cover it over with denial People just begin to de deny that it ever happened, right? This never happened to me. I'm never gonna do this. I'm never gonna deal with it. I'm never gonna bring it up again. I'm gonna deny it. Or they get stuck in memories that are a black hole of terror and fear. <sighs> Perhaps, uh, let me quote uh, David Pallison for a second. Perhaps you are working hard to stay in denial and keep your memories locked away. 
And doing this is a little like having a lion in your bedroom closet. You can try to keep the lion of your past betrayal caged in, in, in all different ways. Some positive, like working hard, exercising, achieving, keeping busy, etc. And some not so positive. You might use sex, food, alcohol, or drugs to numb yourself. But in the end, the lion is too strong for whatever doors you have erected. And your mind is flooded with memories. You re- relive your betrayal and abuse and are again filled with fear, rage and anguish you experienced as in the past. But there is a third way besides denial and despair. There is a third way. The third way you can learn to hear God's promises and to pour out your heart to God about your troubles in a purposeful way. You know, Pallison says in the Psalms, the Psalms capture the experience of being abused, misused, used, and betrayed by others. Think about it. Psalm 55, 56, and 57 are good places to go. Psalm 55 was written out of the fire and darkness of being betrayed by someone close, someone who should have been trustworthy. In the middle of the Psalm, David says that he wasn't attacked by an overt enemy. It was my companion and my familiar friend in chapter 55, verse 13. My companion and my familiar friend attacked me. That closeness made the betrayal even worse. Perhaps you felt that way also. Psalm 56 is about someone who, is, who feels imprisoned by people who hate him. He's trapped. He's tied down. He feels like he is locked in a closet. People want to kill him, hurt him, and torture him, and they have all the power. He has none. Does this describe some of your experience? Or Psalm 57 is about having a predator after you. David wrote it when he was hiding from his enemy in a cave. Those who wanted to kill him were waiting outside with an army. You might remember feeling the same way. As you read these, these psalms are more than just the experience of betrayal, powerlessness, and fear. In the middle of the darkness of betrayal, the darkness of violence and the darkness of hurt is the cry of faith. David is turning to his living, all-powerful God and expecting help and deliverance. He has hope. He has someone good and powerful to talk to. The same is true for you and for me. The reality that your God hears you, helps you, and defends you will let you open the closet door of your betrayal, come out of the silence, the aloneness, and the stuckness, and start to talk it out with God. Yeah, I can't tell you that, you know, I'm just going to give you one sermon and all the issues of betrayal are not going to be in your past. That's not going to happen. There's no quick fix. But rather, the, the promises of hope for the future, the promises that you are not alone, but in Christ that you are loved and cared for and adopted into the family of God, the fact that you are not alone and that there is hope for the future, those two seeds need to be implanted into our heart and they need to be fed and watered on a regular basis. Or what I've heard it said is is this, is that those two truths need to be kneaded into our hearts. You know, when you knead bread dough, you're kneading the, um, the, um, what what do you call it? The the yeast into the bread. Thank you, honey. I appreciate that. You know, Um, you're, you're kneading it in. And in the same way, every week in the midst of betrayal, we need those truths, the promises of God to be kneaded into our hearts so that we understand them and we get them so that we can actually, um, not just be a recovering person, 
You know, because God's aim is not recovery, right, from betrayal. God's aim is redemption in the midst of betrayal. To redeem that which is broken. You know, when you think about um, this idea of, of um, coming together, you know, we want to plant seeds. And, and oftentimes when somebody comes into my office and they've dealt with betrayal, and, I, and again, I see this, you're like, I want to be able to do a quick fix. In the same way that, uh, how many of you um, like to plant seeds in a garden? Anybody? You know, planting seeds in a garden is a wonderful thing, right? The problem is, I go out the next day to see if that seed has germinated and if it's made any progress. And I'm always like, I'm like the, the little boy in the carrot seed, right? If, if you guys, some of you guys know that book. If you go out to look at that and you're like, is it growing yet? Is it growing yet? Is it growing yet? Is it growing yet? And yet, God works in his timing, and yet we come to him and we cry out. We cry out, Lord, I have been betrayed. I have been betrayed by a spouse. I have been betrayed by a parent. I have been betrayed by a child. I have been betrayed by the church. Lord, would you bring about healing? Would you bring about healing in my life so that I can forgive, so that that lion in the closet does not devour me and send me into a, really, into a a ditch of despair? And sometimes I've just seen people living there. They will live there, and they think that living there is the only option. That people will not set foot into a church that has betrayed them because it is too difficult. But I'm here to tell you, the gospel's bigger than that. The gospel of love and forgiveness and of Jesus can wash away those sins. Now, it doesn't mean that you forget them, but it does mean that you do not become that one story in your life. That your life is bigger than that one betrayal. And that God can move you to a place of recovery, but also to a place of redemption that is deep and true, so that you might actually be able to help others who are suffering as well. Yeah, the, the idea is that we, this is a, a community project as well. That in the midst of betrayal, in the midst of suffering that we have undergone, that we need to have people to share our story with, who understand that terrible things do happen, and yet we have a wonderful God who invades those things with steadfast love and faithfulness. You need to talk not only about what happened to you, but how you've reacted to it, and how the Lord will help you to return good for evil. Look for someone who will take the evil that happened to you seriously, who will be compassionate, and who will and we'll have a vision of how God can redeem you and your past. In the midst of that, when we come, we want to look for slow and steady change to occur. What can you expect? Let me quote Pallison again. He says, you can expect that if you've been too fearful to even face your betrayal or your abuse, that cracking open the door and bringing light into the dark vortex is a significant step. When your pain is raw and overwhelming, you can expect that your pain will lessen as you start to bring your pain to God by using the Psalms. Healing and peace will grow, not in an instant, but over time. Perhaps there will be parts of what happened that will not leave you until Christ returns. Only at the return of Christ, when he makes all things well, will every tear be wiped away. You are marked by suffering, but that suffering has become your context for knowing God. You're marked by suffering, but you've learned to take small steps of obedience, wise love and hope. Most amazing, you will be able to help other sufferers. 
He talks about, um, <laughs> he talks about a woman um, who has you know, struggled with this, a woman in his church who had been through a terrible worst case scenario child abuse came to him for pastoral counsel. She was in her early 30s and had been a Christian for 15 years. She had already taken many steps in the right direction. She had come to faith in, in God through Christ. She had seen her own pride, fear of man, and love of comfort and had asked for mercy from God. She was a teacher and especially reached out to the children who were suffering. Her suffering was slowly being transformed. It wasn't an accident that she had gotten involved in working with children, especially those who had been abused, neglected, and abandoned. Her life reflected that she hadn't gotten over it, but facing her abuse and going to God with her suffering led her to a deep relationship with God. She lived as God's servant, working to redeem evils in the suffering world. Brothers and sisters, that is redemptive. That is the beauty of what Jesus does. You see, what, what Jesus does in the midst of this is, and, and go back to John chapter 13, and I'm, I'm gonna wrap up here in a second. But you know, like I haven't preached in a couple weeks, so I might go a little long today, sorry. And when we go to John chapter 13, when Jesus comes back to the disciples, he says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. He's saying that in the midst of the body of Christ, in the midst of my family, I want you to go into those deep, dark places with other people and love them with the gospel. Listen compassionately and give them great hope and let them know that they are not alone one of the ways that we express and demonstrate love to others around us is by being with them in the midst of their trials and suffering. What are you supposed to do when somebody's struggling? You just show up. You might hold their hand. You might pray for them. And you might just cry with them. But in the midst of that, you lead them towards Jesus who will never let them down and can actually redeem a difficult tragedy into something that's beautiful. Think about this. As you learn about how Christ, Jesus Christ meets, enters, and transforms your particular affliction in life, you can begin to help others who are facing all kinds of affliction. Your compassion, your wisdom, and your hope for redemption will bring the light of God to a world dying in darkness and suffering. And then you will be able to say along with Joseph at the end of Genesis 50, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let me just say this in closing. I see people who are trapped in bitterness, malice, denial, or the ditch of despair. There is hope. And Jesus can redeem all all of that. And what he does is he goes to the cross and forgives us for all of our sins. And what we have is the table set in front of us to remind us that we are forgiven. And as people who are forgiven, we are called to forgive. And as people who are forgiven, we are called to bring people out of the darkness and into the light of Jesus. You see, this bread on the night when he's betrayed, he took bread and said, this is my body, which is for you, broken for you. 
And this cup that is filled with this fruit of the vine, this, this juice, he had wine then. He said, this cup represents my blood and the new covenant, which is shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And why do we proclaim his death? Because in his death, we find life. In his death, our sins are atoned for. In his death, we are adopted into the family of God. And we are never alone. You know, I am not so obtuse to think that there are people here who have not experienced significant betrayals, significant abuse. But I'm here to tell you that through Jesus and the gospel, there is hope for healing and redemption. If you have trusted and believed in Jesus, then you are welcome at this table. If you do not believe in Jesus, rather go find an elder to explain to you what redemption looks like, what forgiveness is, how Jesus paid it all. Who is Jesus and what does he do? Go find an elder at the end of the service. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that this this bread and this juice will always remain bread and juice. But Father, you pour forth your grace upon your people, grace upon grace to remind us of your gospel, for what Jesus has done for us, for the, for the penal substitutionary atonement. Father, we praise you for the way that you love us. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we partake, that we would remember that you can redeem all situations. Father, for those who are hurting, for those who have been betrayed, for those who have been abused, Father, I pray, Lord, that Holy Spirit, that you would bring about comfort, that you would bring about healing, that we would, we would be a church and a place where those who are broken can come. So, Father, with open arms, Father, we come to you. Father, would you give to your children what we need? Father, would we trust and believe in Jesus? Father, you are the very best. So Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.